It's Tout Wars this weekend, and we have the Commissioner, Peter Kreutzer, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 15th. It's show number 10 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We'll talk with Peter Kreutzer. He's the Tout Wars Commissioner and a longtime Fantasy Baseball Authority. We'll talk with him about Tout Wars, about his website AskRotoman.com and his work at PatentAndCo.com, about trends in fantasy baseball, and about the music website RockRemnants.com, including an Elton John song not performed by Elton John. And finally, Peter will suggest some of his sleepers and bleepers for 2016. It's another big Tuesday Tout edition of our show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Tout Wars weekend is coming up fast. We gotta talk some baseball. And as promised, our Tuesday Tout Edition has the Commissioner of Tout Wars and a guy who's been around fantasy baseball since its earliest days. Peter Kreutzer joins us on the telephone from New York City. Peter, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, it's nice to be here, Patrick. Peter, uh, let's start by talking about Tout Wars. It must be a very busy time for you. You're organizing Tout Wars 2016 in Manhattan this weekend. How goes the last-minute rush? I think we're pretty much set. There's some uh, catering issues that have to be solved, but I think uh, everybody is coming. There have been no no cancellations. The uh, we're having we're adding um, a, a draft on an auction actually on um, Friday night, so that's been a little bit of a challenge. And um, we're back at SiriusXM, which uh, we were hoping to not be, but. I think uh, they were very gracious to take us back in when the hotel we were hoping to draft in didn't open in time and it hasn't hasn't opened. So um, we're back there for a year, and then I think we're going to have a permanent home going forward after that in uh, in Midtown at a at a sports bar. That's going to be fantastic, uh, Peter. Before we talk about this year's Tout Wars in particular, uh, what do you think is the best way for listeners and fantasy players in general to use the information from the various Tout drafts when uh, when those owners are doing their own draft planning? Uh, I think that the um, these are it's funny they're not exactly wisdom things they're individual things that happen in each one of our auctions and drafts with the experts that are unusual to that particular draft just as there is in every draft that or every auction that you participate in there are going to be oddball prices there are going to be two guys who are after the same guy and bid him up a little bit so you can't use these things as as the rule of thumb um you can't use them as a guideline for your own auction per se but they are a good way to test your theories about players and what they're going to go for and how they're going to work in your um particular league and, and test them against what the experts have done. Because the one thing you know is that the experts are aware of who all the players are, and they know who all the players are, and they're trying their best to do the best they can because they have a lot of reputation riding on the, on these um, games. And um, so it's I think it's as a kind of a, a checking up on, on 
where the hot players are and where the cold players are and where you might find some bargains and, and avoid getting sucked into um, a death spiral in your own auction. I was talking about this a few weeks ago with some other uh, fantasy baseball experts, and the general consensus seems to be that once you get past the first couple of rounds, and there's always a couple of interesting things that happen in, in straight drafts or in auction drafts where a guy goes a little higher or a little more or less expensively than uh, we might have thought, but it's always a matter of a, few, of a few spaces, not a few rounds. And then as you get into the middle of the draft, the draft itself takes on a context that has a great influence on how players are priced, how, how, uh, how players are slotted, and it has to do more with who needs what when than it has to do with the actual player value because as you hit that great middle, the players are not that far apart in value really. I mean, of course they are when you lay them out on a grid, but, but in actual fact there's uh, something to be said for this player at this price or this pitcher at this price, and sometimes they bounce around a little. And for that reason, I think what you say about you can't use it to price your own draft is perfectly accurate. I, I think so. One of the things um, that has interested me in recent um, years, I've, I've written about this a bit um, the last couple of years, is if you take the um, mixed auction pricing and you um, order, those player, order those prices and then apply them to the players in the order they were drafted in the um, mixed draft, you get a, a kind of a, a pricing curve for that, that reflects what uh, it reflects on position scarcity, the players at the top who are bid up more, um, the uh, mixed 15-team mixed league, and even more so a 12-team mixed league, um, it, the prices aren't linear. The, the top players, you know, go for more, much more. Their stats are worth much more than those of the of uh, the players in the middle or at the bottom. Um, I mean, a, a home run from Mike Trout is worth more in a, in a way than a home run from uh, uh, Freddie Freeman or somebody. Um, and uh, we can see that in the middle of those drafts, in the middle of those auctions, the, the players from are interchangeable. They go from their average draft position can vary by scores of places. And yet when you look at the dollar values, that might be the difference between being $18 and $15. It's not very much between a few rounds in terms of um, what people are actually willing to pay for those players in an auction. And that tells you a lot about um, the interchangeableness about players. I'm basically agreeing with you, agreeing with me. Well, let me agree with you further. Uh, uh, BaseballHQ.com, a few years ago, one of our researchers, I think it was Bill Macy, uh, did a mathematical analysis of the correlation between draft slots in a straight draft format and draft cost in an auction format, and he came up with a curve, and it's a logarithmic curve rather than, as you said, a straight line curve, and he actually came up with a formula that shows at the very top of the Mike Trout, Paul Goldschmidt end that prices are quite high, and then they level off into a more linear curve as you get farther down into the draft, and that part of it was pretty interesting. I was curious when you said that uh, a home run for Mike Trout is worth more than one from Freddie Freeman, isn't it more a case that a home run for Mike Trout costs more than one from Freddie Freeman, but might not necessarily be worth more? That you could you could put it that way, but um, you are more willing to pay for the home run from Mike Trout, not just for the home run, but for the whole package. For the fact that the whole package is um, more valuable and harder to replace 
than um, Freddie Freeman is. So you're you're willing to go the extra yards because there is nobody. There aren't very few players who are um, as productive as the as the top two rounds of players are in a in a um, in a draft or you know as as the top players are in an auction in an auction in a shallow league in a twelve or fifteen team league mixed league. Um, so you could say that it, that the home run itself is actually worth the same, but your willingness and the and the, the um, smartness of actually paying more for it um, kind of makes it more makes the the stats worth more in a way too. Uh, now that you say it, it does make sense because uh, a Mike Trout home run that you're buying also kind of carries with it. Uh, a little bit of a share of of a stolen base. It's going to have a little bit of a share of the counting stats on runs and RBIs. It's even going to have a batting average advantage that a lot of other home runs aren't going to have. In fact, that some other home runs from uh, from a uh, I don't know uh, uh, who who's a player that has a real low bet. Mark Trumbo, for instance. Uh, that guy has a, a home run that, as a home run, it's worth the same, but because it carries all this baggage, a lack of stolen bases, a cost and batting average, it actually is worth less. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's the package, really, that's worth more, um, and the irreplaceableness of the package. You can always replace Mark Trumbo with, uh, well, I, I've, I've long thought that C.J. Crone would replace Mark Trumbo, but he hasn't quite gotten there. But, it's, but it, you can see that similar players, can, at that level, can be easily replaced. There aren't many players who can step up and be Mike Trout or or be Paul Goldschmidt. The Tout Wars has been going now for how many years? I think it's eighteen. I think this is eight, the eighteenth year. And at the start, it was uh, played by traditional rules, uh, and over the years has been willing to make some pretty significant changes. I know Tout Wars switched from batting average to on-base percentage in mixed leagues a couple of years ago, and now you've extended that to the only leagues as well. When the Tout Brains Trust gets together, what is your philosophy about changing the changing those kind of things, the, the categories that, that are played and, and the other rules. I know we're going to talk in a minute about the Vickery method for fab bidding. These things get uh, added and subtracted, and I'm wondering what's the guiding philosophy behind doing those changes? Well, we, the, the, the guiding philosophy is we, we try to improve the game when we can. Um, the, the, the big discussion in switching from batting average to on-base percentage was that on-base percentage and and this is arguable. Some people disagree with this vehemently. Um, I think Nando Defino is one of those. Um, it, it, it's our feeling that on base percentage, because it includes walks, the same way that pitcher WHIP includes walks, is um, is a much better measure of a baseball player's worth than batting average, which is. Um, is a whole lot more variance in batting average in, in terms of uh, statistical variance. So um, our decision to move to on-base percentage was because we were convinced um, after we played in a league called the XFL for 11 years, 12 years, using on-base percentage. That convinced me that on-base percentage was a much better measure of uh, hitter's value and, and that we really should be using it. Um, a lot of people disagree. They like batting average. Uh, some people, um, Nando and, and uh, Chris Liss, who's another one who argued that that variance is actually not a bug, it's a feature in, in batting average, that it means that you can't rely on 
the the boring sameness from year to year of hitters that um, they, their batting average can swing wildly even if they're doing the exact same thing and that that's a good thing. I I, I disagree. We think it makes a better game, and that's um, been the guiding principle for what as we've introduced um, changes in the game. Bearing in mind that we also don't want to run too far ahead of um, what regular players are doing. We do want our values to be reflective of what is happening in real drafts. In this case, we thought it was worth the change because we want, we'd like to see people follow us if they agree. And if they don't, it's, it's not a huge difference in the pricing of most players. Um, some of them change a lot. Um, Joey Votto, let's say. Or, but it's, um, it's, we think it's, it's we, we hope that to become something of a standard that people can measure themselves against. Or not, if they if they disagree. On, on the topic of uh, whether a variance in a statistic is a bug or a feature, that's an interesting concept to to think about. I know pitcher wins has been at the, at the core of that particular debate for a long time as well. Uh, I I wrote a column last year for Baseball HQ, and I think I uh, talked about it here on the show that uh, pitcher wins needs to be replaced because not so much of the variance in the total, which of course happens for from pitcher to pitcher, but because of the variance in just the sheer luck and happenstance of the of the stat itself. And again, we had pushback from a lot of people who said, no, 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 that's a good part of it because otherwise it's it's too much like betting the f- racing form rather than the horse race. You, you need to have some happenstance in the game to make it exciting and interesting because uh, otherwise why don't we just go to, to straight metrics like uh, strikeouts per nine innings and walks per nine innings rather than actual strikeouts and walks because they're a lot more predictable and the problem is because they're predictable the game becomes more predictable and and uh, therefore not as exciting and interesting and fun all, all of an interesting um, topic for discussion um, I I, I mean, I can see, I can see the point. I can see the point when, in real baseball, if we get away from fantasy baseball, when you argue who should win the Cy Young Award, and you say, well, this guy won 21 games, and this guy only won 15 games, you can see both sides of it. One guy might have had poor run support, and and that's the reason why he lost. He won six fewer games than the other guy, or the other guy might have had um, just, you know, had situations that won him a bunch of extra games. I, in, in favor of that, I actually do come down a little bit on the side of, you can't disregard the fact that a guy, the guy, the point of the game is to win games. The guy won more games. That, that does matter. It does count. It, we just need to value it properly and, um, and make decisions based on, on how, much, how we want to play. A lot of people are moving to quality starts, as the category rather than wins in the in the new Tout Wars head-to-head league, we're using quality starts plus wins, which is um, another um, variation. Uh, and we'll see. I've, that's a that's a new approach to me, and I. I I'm looking forward to seeing how that works and if it really makes a difference. It's an interesting debate, that's for that's for sure, and uh, a great place to play it out is in leagues like this because uh, so many people are paying attention to tout wars, and if, they, if it appears that the idea makes sense, then gradually it'll start filtering out. I think on-base percentage is finding its way into more and more leagues, especially ones being run by people who care about you know trying to get some... Um, accuracy in the outcomes that, that more reflect the realities of Major League Baseball. And uh, Tout has been uh, 
doing those changes, as I said. And one of the changes you've made in the uh, only leagues is to remove an outfielder from the roster requirement and replace it with what is called the swingman position. can be either a 14th hitter or a 10th pitcher. What was the thinking behind that change? Anybody who plays in an AL or NL only league, even with 12 teams, um, <clears throat> and we used to have 13 in the NL when there were um, 16 NL teams, um, knows how just how bleak the waiver wire is um, on the hitting side all season long. And the reason has nothing to do with fantasy baseball. It has totally to do with the way that major league teams have populated their um, their rosters. It, it, it used to be that there were 12 or 13, 14 hitters and um, 10 or 11 pitchers. Now we see often um, 12 hitters and, and 13 pitchers on um, ma- making up a major league roster. And this has meant that there are many fewer um, alternative options on the hitting side. We talked about just um, adding a dropping an outfielder and adding a 10th um, pitcher, which um, I actually have done in another league that I play in. Um, but we came up with the idea of the swing guy, which gives teams the option. They can go with 10 pitchers, they can, or they can go with and, and, um, 13 hitters, or they can go with 14 hitters and um, 9 pitchers. That becomes a strategic option. Uh, it doesn't change prices very much because it's the, it's the last player on the, on the roster, so it's a $1 player for the most part. But it, it gives you some options during waiver time to say, wow, you know, there's no, there are no hitters here. Let me add a, one of these relievers and, and work that way. Um, that was the thinking, that was, and that was the reason for it, very much having to, follow, having to do with the way Major League teams built their rosters. It's interesting because last week at uh, Master Notes at, at BaseballHQ.com and here on the show, I talked about the, that, that swing that has happened between uh, in the roster balance at the major league level and how it has affected especially single league formats. And it turns out if you apply a little bit of sort of basic math about how the proportions are, we should be really using 12 hitters and 11 pitchers. And uh, when I put that out there for consideration, a lot of people said, no, no, that's too big a change. Do you, do you find that you have to calibrate the change to, to not be too jarring? People like the way they've, they've played, and change is, it comes hard to people, uh, to a lot of people. I mean, it's, we're wired to some extent to um, appreciate the familiar and, and feel comfortable with it, and change brings a little bit of the unfamiliar. So um, I, th- I think most changes need to be incremental. We saw, you know, some people really objected to us switching to on-base percentage, because that it was adding this whole bases on balls component, um, and it and it definitely changed the value of some players outside of people's regular comfort zone. And if they weren't coming along, then our prices. All those changes matter in terms of um, people's comfort, but so so. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm saying we we don't have to make it. Completely congruent. The game works actually quite well with the swingman. Um, the first year there was a lot of discussion about who was doing what, and now I, I don't think we even really notice it very much. It's um, I haven't ever seen anybody break down and say, "Oh, this was this was changed my season." It just definitely gives you more options to play from week to week, and that that's 
that helps people feel more involved and have more fun. And that's the key thing, after all. Now, I noticed last year I was reviewing the uh, the leagues, and the American League only league every every uh, owner took a hitter in that swingman spot at draft. Now, during the season, that would have bounced back and forth, as you suggest. But because the because there's such a shortage of hitters, did you expect to see uh, mostly hitters go at least at the draft stage? Yes, that's. I think that's happened every year. There's only been there, there's maybe one or two cases where somebody's taken a pitcher. Um, often speculating about somebody um, that that has high potential that you know rather than waiting to the reserve round putting somebody in that spot as a pitcher but otherwise um, the hitters on draft day are definitely more valuable the pitchers at that point are middle relievers and you you know there'll be plenty of them available on reserve as the season goes along one other change that caused a lot of conversation in the tout community this year was dropping the Vickery method of fab bidding. First of all, for people who are not familiar, explain briefly what Vickery is, why Tout Wars adopted it originally, and why it has been dropped at this stage. Vickery is an auction method um, that was invented by a uh, Nobel Prize winning economist and um, whose name was Vickery. I actually I don't, I don't know that for a fact. Um, the basic idea is that people who um, are in closed bidding situations will often feel, cons- his observation was that people in closed bidding situations will feel nervous about overbidding and making themselves appear foolish and overpaying, and that this suppresses actual prices in a, in a um, closed bidding. So his suggestion was if you tell everybody that they are that the winning bid is going to be $1 more than the second um, highest bid, that that takes away that um, fear of exposing oneself to ridicule and makes puts people on their best behavior to bid what they actually think the asset is worth. Um, and Tau Wars adopted it many, many years ago because um, it seemed like it, that fab bidding was the perfect closed bidding situation where um, if you really wanted a player you might not bid as much as you want to because you uh, you might you might artificially keep the bidding down because of nervousness about overbidding and Vickery takes that away and in fact Vickery worked great on players for whom there was a broad market for their for if there was an AL player who came over to the NL player a, a regular hitter there'd be a wide range of bids and the and the top player would get it for the $1 more than the second price and that would obviously be a fair um, a fair price where the system started to break down is in the players who might be a semi regular or a regular for a few weeks while somebody was hurt um, one team might need a second baseman and they might bid 18 and then nobody else would bid and Vickery would knock the price down to a dollar and um, and that would happen time after time after time, so that because the real market wasn't being established by the group, it was um, one team really needed a player, they couldn't be sure, so they bid a real price. When nobody else bid, um, the the bidding was undermined, and and that I thought that was a, that was <laughs> I didn't like that, and um, I suggested and we implemented for a few years a ten dollar floor. Which meant that if you bid up to ten dollars, it was your actual bid. Vickery didn't apply. If it went, if you bid more than ten dollars 
and nobody else bid, your price, your bid would be reduced to ten dollars. And this it worked to um, make people more thoughtful about their bidding on these guys who may or may not have multiple competitive bids. But everybody hated it, um, and we uh, and basically voted to get to get rid of the floor, which put us back into this other situation, which I hated. The biggest, the bigger problem, though, as it turned out, was that getting the bidmeister, the automatic bidding system, to properly account for the Vickery bidding during the the automatic processing of the fab bidding, um, in weeks when a team was bidding much of their fab on multiple players, um, Vickery would get a the Vickery made it impossible for the um, bidmeister to get it right. And so we would then the SWATs would then have to go in and manually <laughs> adjust the adjust the um, Vickery bids, which nobody liked, and which um, I think probably over the years some some errant bids snuck through when we were unaware of this. The long and short of it was this problem, coupled with the apparent inequity uh, of that I was describing about when there's no market. Vickery doesn't work very well. When, there, when there's no market for a player, Vickery just reduces that player to a free player, even though they may have real value to one team. Um, the two things made us decide to let Vickery go. And um, in its place, we upped the FAB budget from 100 units to 1,000 units, which gives allows for some greater granularity in terms of making one, free bids, $1 bids, and um, figuring out how to utilize your fab all season long. Well, I'm very curious about the idea of whether the market set has actually set a price for a player at a dollar if one only one guy bids 18. It's an interesting question because it sounds like the market has set that player's value at zero and that uh, in an open auction, he would have only bid one because that's all he would have had to bid and, and that's what Vickery's meant to emulate, I believe. Uh, Vickery was a guy. His name was William Vickery. He's a Canadian guy, actually. He won the Nobel Prize, but he did all his work at Columbia University. It's an interesting, all of these things pop up and they create these interesting debates, which is part of the fun of, of being involved in a league, I guess. Uh, a couple of years ago, Peter, Tout introduced a new league called Tout X, and it was a, an experimental league that was designed, uh, the plan was to use a different experimental fantasy format every year. Uh, has it worked so far? What did you guys learn from it? Uh, how's it going? Well, our, our motivation for Tout X, which we actually introduced last year in 2015, was the first Tout X season. We talked about it for, um, for at various points over the years, and we were confronting last year the fact that um, we had a lot of people who were qualified to play in Tout Wars and who wanted to play in Tout Wars, and, um, and we didn't have much turnover in the, in the four leagues that we were running. So um, the thought last year was to add a um, what we would call Tout X, where we would make up a format, a game each year. Um, it didn't necessarily have to be radical. I think our, we started with um, last year using Ron Chandler's monthly games, <coughs> mostly because um, the stat keeping was already in place and it was kind of an off-the-shelf solution. And it was uh, it's, a, it's a lot like regular rotisserie, except the time frame was different. Um, and the goal was to introduce um, different, uh, you know, different categories from year to year. Um, maybe go try with quality starts, 
do something, do more sabermetric categories in some leagues. Um, I have a, a, a hope that we're going to be able to introduce some interesting pitching um, categories. I, I'm sorry, interesting fielding categories in the Tout X League this year. But the um, the problem with it after last year was that we still didn't have a lot of movement. And a lot of the people who played in Tout X last year, when it came time to introducing a new format this year, were less than happy about having to go into something that involved more studying, more something that they couldn't really write about in their in their jobs, because we're all fantasy baseball writers and and um, or, or broadcasters and and. If you if you can't really discuss it as a meaningful subject for your readers, um, that it didn't seem such as good a fit. So exploring that and talking with people, um, we came to recognize that really, if we're going to have the same people be in the same league from year to year, for the most part, um, that we should do something that's a little more durable. And so we switched from the tout X format for that league to a tout head-to-head format for this year, and um, it, it has some of the same people as were in the Tout X League last year, and some new people, including me. I'm moving from the National League over to the head-to-head league, um, and we have three new guys, um, three, three new players in the, in the league. And um, we're going to have the head-to-head league be an enduring league from year to year. Um, right now it's scheduled to be the kickoff to Tout Weekend. The um, auction is this Friday at 7 p.m. and um, will be live on SiriusXM, and you can follow along with a live blog and a spreadsheet at uh, toutwars.com. And um, and then and I hope and the, uh, there'll be news later if this works out. I hope we will have a Tout X League that'll be open only to Tout Wars um, members, and which we'll probably do as an online. Thing to to test out new categories like these um, fielding categories, or to try out new modes of play or um, roster setup and things like that. We'll I, I hope that we'll be able as an ongoing thing to have um, these experiments and get people to participate as they see fit and as their interest sees fit. And um, we'll do that in in the coming years and maybe with we'll come up with some new concepts to incorporate into the other leagues as as um, things work out. Uh, last year, Tout Wars also ran a, a draft uh, in conjunction with one of the f- daily fantasy operators. Is that going to be uh, reha- repeated this year? We're hoping um, the fantasy daily fantasy, fantasy operators are um, embattled and embroiled in lots of um, interesting and complicated legal and uh, marketing issues right now. So right. Um, FanDuel, who's very... Um, generously funded us last year and, and let everybody play in their game um, is d- passed on it this year and um, we have a couple of other leads and we're talking to them and um, we're we're hoping to be able to do it because we want to support the daily fantasy um, games and we want to um, we also like it as a way to uh, get some money into the touts pockets and uh, and we think it's a it's a good showcase for people who are interested in the daily fantasy games to see what um, what the touts are doing playing those games. But um, right now we don't have a, a deal set up, and so we're not sure what's going to happen. We still have a couple of weeks to work it out. 
Now, Peter, you mentioned that this year's drafts take place at the SiriusXM headquarters. I believe it's on 6th Avenue in New York City. If you happen to be in the neighborhood, can uh, visitors attend and watch a, a bit of the draft live? I'm afraid that the security in the building is such that um, they really can't come by and watch the drafts live. It's, um, it's not, I mean, that is the reason we're trying to find a public venue that we can, um, as we had last year, we were in a, in, um, at the City Crab restaurant, and, and uh, it was kind of great that people could stop by and drop in and hang out. Uh, unfortunately, the restaurant um, closed and became a different restaurant where they were not um, interested in us taking up that, their space. Um, and so I think we're going to, it's a little too early to announce this, but um, I think we'll have a permanent spot next year, and um, it'll be in a public um, place in a sports bar that will be um, very amenable to everyone, including the radio people, the TV people, and the uh, and anybody who wants to stop by and watch, you know, the very exciting fantasy baseball auctions that we put on. So I suppose, uh, of course, that uh, our listeners can tune in at SiriusXM Radio to listen to uh, all of these drafts. How else can uh, people follow the drafts as they go, as they go on? Well, there's a live um, blog that'll be um, that different people are hosting for each of the um, for each of the auctions, and there's also a live spreadsheet that shows where each player, as they're taken, um, on the you know on the draft grid, and it's the same draft grid that'll be used by the players in the draft room. Um, and so the chat, uh, the the live blog is um, a place where you can sign up and you can chat with. Uh, the people running it are uh, Jason. Jason Collette is doing a couple of them, and uh, Al Melchior and uh, Tim Haney are doing um, the various ones for the various drafts. And you can talk to them and talk about pricing and strategy, and uh, and and keep up with what's going on in the draft room through the vehicle of the live blog. Tell Wars is this weekend. Uh, tune in on SiriusXM. Follow it on the blogs, and uh, I suppose you go to TellWars.com and track up all that stuff. Peter, it sounds really super interesting. This is Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. We have Peter Kreutzer, the commissioner of Tell Wars. And Peter, you also operate the website AskRotoman.com. Tell listeners who aren't familiar about the site. Well, it's really been my um, my personal fantasy baseball site for um, eons. Uh, it started I. I started writing the Ask Rotoman column at ESPN in 1996. And um, I started out as the place to um, point to the articles on ESPN and then on Major League Baseball, um, MLB.com. And um, in recent years, it's been a place for me to, to answer some reader questions during the spring, sometimes during the season, um, and point to other things that I'm doing. And uh, it's uh, it's more of a hobby now than anything else, so it doesn't always get all the attention that it probably should. But it's uh, but it, there's a lot of the archives are there. There's a lot of things you can search for and find um, from the long history of Rotoman. As the name of the site suggests, you open the site up to visitor questions, as you mentioned. I'd like to go over a few that popped up recently. One of your visitors asked about the new Korean import, Hyun Soo Kim, a potential leadoff guy in Baltimore. Uh, some people are interested. What was your analysis of this new Korean player? We don't really, we don't have great benchmarks for Korean players. We have um, Mr. Chu and uh, and we a few examples, but um and and uh, Mr. Kang and uh, 
the the level of play has been good, but we I, I think we can feel less than comfortable in making declarations about what players are going to be able to do. Kim has fantastic on base skills um, and and uh, and has a little power, and we'll have to see how that um, works out. But it, it makes him a very good leadoff hitter in in Baltimore, and um, potentially a leadoff hitter with some some home run pop as well. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if we we don't see much on the home run side and just a, a lot of on base percentage, which um, will play very nicely in front of all those power hitters in the Orioles lineup. Any stolen base potential there? No, he's, he's not a he's a corner outfielder, and he's not um, particularly fast in that way. Another visitor asked why Joe Panic went undrafted in a mock draft you held in your magazine, the Fantasy Guide uh, 2016, and your answer addressed everyone who follows these mock and industry drafts, especially when they take place so far before the season. What were your thoughts, not necessarily about Joe Panic so much, but about the idea of mock drafts taking place, you know, even before Christmas? Uh, it's a it's a good question. Even before Thanksgiving is the um, is the fact of the matter. Um, people like the mock draft in the magazine generally. I think they also recognize that um, there are some severely limited um, there's there's limited utility to a lot of it. And a player like Panic, who um, although he's a fine ball player and a, and a definitely a helpful player in a NL only league. Is a very marginal player in a in a fifteen team mixed league. He's, uh, I mean, I I think you like him because maybe he can have he can become a better hitter, or a more productive hitter in the in the years to come. But um, what we can expect from him this year is, uh, you know, an end game type of play. Um, he didn't he didn't get in because people filled up their second baseman earlier. There's um, he was hurt at the end of last year. His numbers don't look that good. Didn't look that particularly good, and um, and I and the other point I make is that uh, in all of these mock drafts and uh, in industry mock drafts, in um, online mock drafts that you might participate in, you really have to be aware of the um, role that the software and the, the that is the order of players that are presented to the drafter um, has on the on the draft itself, and I. Don't, I have no way of going back and seeing the way that the setup was, but I'm sure that Joe Panic was way down the list for for whatever reason, and so he never popped up on anybody's um, list. And that is obviously going to come into play um, when you're looking at magazine mock drafts. Um, there, I think they're of utility. You can see who was taken. I I like to use it to see which of the rookies were taken because I, everybody focuses on that a little bit. It gives us um, something to uh, process on on our in our rookie coverage um, or in our prospect coverage, um, but I, it's very much a process. And watching how mock drafts change as the as November turns into January, turns into February, is um, if you're an avid fantasy baseball fan, that's something you should be able to appreciate and uh, and learn something from because it, it definitely tells you about market trends. Boy, uh, you said a mouthful when you talked about the software and the the, pre- the players who are presented to the uh, to the mock drafter, especially early on like that. And then it tends to become kind of a self reinforcing loop, doesn't it? I mean, the the 
the uh, that player starts locking in at that ADP because he just keeps popping up there, which means he keeps getting uh, shown there and and so forth. And it's really uh, it's not impossible to take Joe Panic wherever you like as long as you're thinking about him. But if you're kind of doing a mock draft, as many people are, while you're kind of got an eye on a hockey game out the corner of your eye or you know you're making your supper or something like that and auto picks as well where the software just picks for you because you just didn't get in on time it's a, it's something people should keep in mind uh, peter you get a fair number of uh, which of these guys should i keep type questions and you to your credit you answer them all one of them you had a nice little discussion about mike moustakis and you really like mike moustakis what were your reasons uh, for for talking up this kansas city third baseman well, I, Moustakis is, is a guy who um, has, he was a prospect, and then he seemed like he was, he seemed like he was a, a failed prospect for a while, but he, that, that, I was looking at his record, and it, it's kind of hard now to see when he was a failed prospect. It, it was, he, but it did, it did take him in each level as he came up through the minor leagues. It took him a while to adjust to the next level, and he was young, and he was, um, and he's, He's a hard worker, and he's a good fielder, and he used his um, hard work and his skills to get better as a hitter and um, and to improve as he's come along. He had a fine year last year, and um, and I don't think that's a, that's a flukish thing, and he's and I don't think that's necessarily the end of his improvement. So I um, am very much a Mike Mustakis fan. Uh, uh, he's. I guess he's uh, he'll be 27 this year. He's you know as they say coming into his prime, which doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be better. But it's um, but I think he's a, a solid um, power hitting guy who makes whose batting average last year the 284 is not a totally freakish thing. It's a part of his natural evolution. You do like to see players like that who just make this slow and steady progress. I remember back in the day when he first came up and he was a somewhat touted prospect and then he didn't set the world on fire. And sometimes to our um, discredit as a, as a fantasy baseball community, we, we take a guy like that. He doesn't perform right away the way we expect and we toss him on the ash heap. And I wonder if maybe being in what was then a fairly um, unsuccessful organization adds to that, to that uh, unfortunate perception of a player oh is another guy that the royals picked another bum you know this kind of thing alex gordon actually got off to a bit of a slow start as well in that regard before they moved him out into the outfield he was regarded as something of a of a failure and in a in an unwarranted way as it turns out he he was a one of these he's he was kind of the Corey seager of his year as a as a prospect and he um and he bombed alex gordon bombed pretty totally that that first year and it took him a long time to uh redeem his reputation and become the baseball player that he actually was which wasn't a superstar but which was an awfully good ball player you got another keeper question and i don't care about the details the more interesting aspect of it was that this guy was playing in a league that was very odd in its format. It was a 7x7 seven seven head-to-head league where they had added, uh, I, f- I forget, uh, on-base percentage, uh, innings pitch. They'd thrown out wins and added strikeouts per nine. It was a very unusual format and very non-standard. And the question that popped into my mind was, for a guy like you, and part of your business, part of you, what you offer to your customers is uh, is player projections, how do you make adjustments for for these kind of oddball league settings well the ideal thing is to have um 
there, there's a couple of things. As we were talking before in the shallow league, you have um, some limited uh, the limited linearity in terms of the pricing. So um, the farther you go into these oddball leagues, and the more categories you have, the more um, some oddball strategy is going to be the thing that wins the league. I assume, because I did a fair amount of work this year on putting together what I hope is going to be a head-to-head format that rewards both short-term and long-term thinking. I'm hoping that I, my thought was that these seven by a seven by seven league in head-to-head is a way of trying to have, have both starters and relievers have value because that's an incredibly difficult balance to find. If you um, in in the tout head-to-head league, the five categories we have are wins plus quality starts, net saves, and then ERA, WHIP, and strikeouts per nine. And um, strikeouts per nine because without with gross strikeouts, start, there's absolutely no reason to take a reliever. And um, But I look at this at the, these five categories and I say, is there really a reason for anybody to take a starter? Um, anyway, that oddball strategies, if you can apply your um, a, a, a pricer to, to your, strata, to your um, categories, you can get an estimation of what the rank of players is, and then you have to decide how much to pay for them. I think there's always an opportunity in, in crazy leagues like that, and I've played in a few. And the the intellectual challenge or the uh, or the gameplay challenge is to try to figure out where is the edge here, especially comparing the the oddball categories that you know with the standard categories. If you expect most of the other players in the league to be more or less abide by the valuations based on standard categories, are there pricing inefficiencies built into those odd categories? And sometimes there are and sometimes there aren't. And it's it's quite an interesting challenge to, to try to figure out how that works. It's a lot of fun, actually. Uh, in a couple of questions relating to 12-team mixed leagues, very shallow leagues, you advise owners to be very relaxed about injury risk. Is that just because of the shallowness? Well, the shallowness means that there are always replacement players who um, can fill in. If you <coughs> if you um, take Carlos Gonzalez, who everybody judges to be an injury risk, um, and he's going to, and you assume he's going to miss a month, the player you get to replace him is going to be a fairly is going to be a regular player, and so um, he's probably not going to be as good as Carlos Gonzalez, but. Um, you can hope that those stats are going to be on your team, and that so you're you're taking Carlos Gonzalez, and you're getting not only his stats but the stats of the guy who replaces him when he's hurt. That makes actually makes Carlos Gonzalez a somewhat better player. And if he doesn't get hurt, then obviously, or if he runs off a string like he did last summer, um, you know, then you're golden. Does that apply more to guys in the middle of the draft? Because even though there are better players available in the free agent pool of a 12-team mix, the drop-off from a Carlos Gonzalez or a Paul Goldschmidt or somebody to the replacement-level player, yes, it's a better replacement-level player, but do you still want to try to manage risk a little more cautiously at the very top of your draft, or does do you think this applies right through the draft? Well, you want to manage it, but so you would, still wouldn't take Gonzalez in the first um in the first round, let's say, or, uh, you know, it would be, the the point is that if you take, if you spend the $28 in an NL only league to take Carlos Gonzalez, and he, and then he might earn the $28 he did last year, 
but um, if he does get hurt and he sits for two months, you're likely not going to have a player who has much value replacing him, and that's going to that's going to devastate your team. Um, in a mixed league, if you miss the two months, it's going you're going to have somebody who puts up some stats. He, that can make up the difference in in terms of that um, somewhat higher draft pick than than uh, in, a, in a shallower league, and that's that's what I'm talking about. It's not um, that you can disregard the injury risk, but you can you don't have to be terrified of taking somebody who um, has pretty good upside, but also the injury downside. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer. And Peter, you're also a regular contributor to Alex Patton's excellent fantasy website, PattonAndCo.com. Tell us about what goes on at that website and your role there. Well, Alex and I, um, Alex put together, Alex who um, joined the uh, Fantasy Sports Writers Hall of Fame, or Hall of Fame this year, um, is a uh, start, released draft software 20 years ago, one of the first draft software packages available. And um, he, I've been contributing uh, player projections and prices to it for about the last 10 years. And, uh, and we, we sell it through a site called patentandco.com, um, where basically we have a discussion board for every player in baseball, many players in the minors, and many in baseball history. And um, we have an incredible group of uh, contributors who um, are just people who like the concept and come by and make uh, write observations about players. We have other people who come by and ask questions, and we provide answers. And it's really just a, a pretty um, neatly organized way to have conversations about um, baseball players, what's happening in the baseball news, and um, and you know, and, and to pitch people on the software, which uh, which we would like to sell. So it's uh, it's not it's not. <laughs> It's not a marketing site. It's really a baseball discussion site um, with that just happens to have a, an awfully good group of guys who come by regularly. And the software has a price, of course. It's well worth the $39, I think it is. But the site itself is free. If you want to join up, you can just get an account going and, and join the conversation. It's a really interesting site. Uh, I, I was just looking at it the other day, and you had a pretty interesting discussion going on about Billy Burns of Oakland, the speedster there, and the idea of guys like him, uh, high average, high stolen base guys, that a lot of people on the thread seem to believe that guys like that tend to be underpriced. And I know you in particular posted, and I'm quoting here, stolen bases are worth a certain amount in the standings, but nobody pays for them like that in the auction. Or I should say the market generally pays less for them than they will potentially earn. Why do you think that is the case? Well, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to it. The, the auction dynamics are such that um, a stolen... When the season is over, we can look at the standings and we can say each stolen base is worth this much, and that adds up to a certain amount. And a stolen base guy like Billy Burns or D. Gordon, who, um, especially in a time like now when there's actually not very many big stolen base guys, um, one guy can can own the category or come close to owning the category. Um, at the end of the season, those guys are worth a lot of. Uh, standings points. But in the auction, some teams have the option of not buying one of those guys. Not everybody is bidding on the top stolen base guys. And some teams are actually deciding not to compete in, in, 
sales at all. And that reduces the, the, um, the market pressure upwards. Um, uh, some teams are willing to not spend the price for the stolen base guys because they are going to go, they're just going to buy power guys and or they're just going to buy pitching or some combination of that. And so that reduces the price of, of the high stolen base guys and the price of the ancillary stolen bases as well. Still, at the end of the day, those prices, those st- steals are worth a certain number of standings points, and um, that's where the inefficiency comes in. The same dynamic applies in, in saves as well, where a limited number of guys have the, the same amount. There's, there's one other aspect, too, of course, in, uh, that applies in, even more in saves than steals, but there are lots and lots of minor league call-ups during the season Guys who aren't very good hitters, who will run a little bit, who will steal seven or eight bases, or guys like Jared Dyson, who might not get very many at-bats, but who will steal a lot of bases. All of that dilutes the steals market, and um, and the same thing happens with closers, um, partly because they fail and new guys take the job who haven't been paid for. In both cases, it's, it's a um, market softness and the ability of teams to um, opt out of the market, I think, that makes... For them to be under underpriced a little bit, um, the what I write about on, on the site too is that batting average is another place where um, we value batting average immensely in in uh, the final standings. But it, everybody knows that batting average fluctuates pretty wildly, and it, you shouldn't assume that the batting average is going to go up. So we we tend to like hold back a little bit when it comes to buying um, average unless it's Miguel Cabrera or somebody who, who is, has a strong batting average every year. Um, both of those things create this atmosphere. I was, I was actually kind of surprised how much both um, Eugene Friedman and um, Mike Gianella were gung-ho on, on uh, these guys. I, um, but I, I think the basic idea is, is there. And, of course, uh, some of those stolen base specialists are really detrimental to the batting average category. Billy Hamilton jumps into mind. is uh, so bad, in fact, that there's some question now whether he's actually going to be able to stay in the big leagues. So a guy like Burns, who's going to deliver you average and stolen bases, adds a little bit. But let me ask you this about, about these stolen base specialists. They come with a cost, and that cost is the roster slot that's not producing any power numbers. And is that a reason to suppress their value in, in, in any tangible way? Well, it's, it's a, the trade-off. And the, the question is really whether um, a, a, a guy who's a lead-off stolen base specialist who is going to score a fair amount of runs, um, you're, yes, you're giving up home runs and you're giving up RBIs from that slot. But in theory, um, if you're uh, the standings gain that you're making in stolen bases and runs and batting average um, is paying for paying his salary. You just have to make sure that you get enough of the power stats in, in your other slots to, to make up for it. That's, um, that's a roster configuration thing more than uh, the, the price should ensure that you do that, but you just have to make sure you get the right guys because you don't want to you don't want to roster some a stolen base guy and then some empty hitters who hit for batting average. That's um, you're you're then going to end up down in the in the power categories. So you figure Billy Burns around a twenty dollar value? Yeah, I think I, I think I have him at eighteen or eighteen or nineteen. He earned uh, he earned twenty one, I think, last year, and 
Um, I don't see any reason for him to, to not be able to repeat. Um, he's, he's not, for this type of guy, he's, um, he, he makes okay contact. He strikes out 15% of the time. He's, he, uh, I think he makes 84%, he had an 84% contact rate last year. That actually, you know, translates to more like a 270 batting average than, um, than the 290 he hit last year. Um, and, and I think that, takes a little nick out of his um, out of expectations but he's he's a young guy and and he he's he actually you know he's a guy who can get a little bit better as he gets more experienced and and applies his skills um, he, he's going to learn how to he's going to learn some of those tricks that make guys like Ben Revere and, and Juan Pierre kind of the model of this type of player I'm also thinking that we have to maybe make some uh, small adjustments or maybe large adjustments for that matter in a, in a, the batting average potential of a guy like Burns because he runs so well. And we have some uh, research at BaseballHQ.com I know over the years that suggests that if you have a very fast player who has a pretty good ground ball profile that he's going to get enough leg hits and it doesn't take that many over the course of the year as you know to raise an average from 270 to 290. It's true. That I mean, that's only like eight or nine hits. So it's um, right. That's uh, and it doesn't it doesn't take a lot of uh, bun hits. There's been a lot of talk recently on on at Patton and Co. about the impact of these guys who um, who bunt forty fifty times and and you know get on base at a three fifty clip on the bunts. That's a that's a big plus to the batting average. And uh, Billy Burns does have a pretty good ground ball profile to take advantage of that speed. And you'd think that anybody who can run like him should learn how to bunt and should learn how to slap the ball around. And I think Billy Burns is, is a player like that. So you make a, an excellent point about his potential value. And, and potential value is what it's all about, really. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Dav with Peter Kreutzer. And Peter, uh, leaving baseball aside for a second, uh, another site that you're affiliated with and, in fact, uh, uh, are a uh, co-owner owner of is rockremnants.com, a music site. And uh, before I go on to a specific question I'm curious about, tell the listeners who aren't familiar, what is rockremnants.com about and how did, how is it organized? What, what's going on at Rock Remnants? Uh, Rock Remnants grew out of um, conversations that uh, a bunch of us had in Arizona um, at the first pitch Arizona um, Chandler Fest in, for many years. Um, and a, a group of us, um, Gene McCaffrey and Steve Moyer and Laura Michaels, primarily, but Patrick, you were there for many of those conversations, and um, and some other people uh, often followed up. Jason Jason Gray was a regular. Um, followed up with email conversations and recommendations about music, and and uh, that went on for many years. At some point a few years ago, I um, I started a WordPress site. And um, and started posting those things there, and we've all contributed. We we attracted a uh, a friend of Lars named Tom Muscarella, who uh, writes a weekly column about um, oddities and hard to find and um, songs. Uh, uh, for he's done that for the last couple of years. Um, so it's a pretty great um, asset to the site. And then the rest of, the rest of it is uh, our different song recommendations. Bits of history, personal history, memoir, um, all having to do with uh, our relationship to rock and roll in some way. 
You have a really interesting article by Tom Mazzarella about Elton John and Bernie Taupin songs that have been released by other artists and not by Elton John himself, except I think in one case there's a rarities collection type thing, a B-side here and there, that kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned Tom's background in music. Uh, how does he find these interesting nuggets, uh, these hard-to-find rarities? I, I think, I, so I, I don't um, know Tom that well. He, he, um, I think he went to school in Boston. He lives in the Bay Area now. And he's um, like, like all of us who are interested in this in one way or another, in one form or another. Um, we map out our different um, passions, and uh, his is clearly like going to record stores and, and flea markets and finding um, stuff that he he's doesn't didn't know about he, that he wasn't aware of, and and making connections between um, musicians on the records we know, and then finding them on records that we didn't know about or things that rarities or things that um have gone out of print or been forgotten and uh i think that's just his passion he's been doing this he had a newsletter for many years before um he started contributing to rock remnants um and he's got a dedicated following and uh where i'm you know very happy to have him there well, you should be. It's a really interesting article, and uh, the one that caught my eye, of course, was the one uh, featuring a song written by Elton John and Bernie Taupin and recorded by Long John Baldry, and it turns out that you're a Long John Baldry fan yourself. Well, I, I love that record. When it came out, it was, um, it, it was on constant rotation for a while on my, um, on my record player. Um, it's, it's, uh, I didn't know anything about Long John Baldry. I think I pictured him as being an old grizzled woogie woogie man and which is the way he kind of presents himself and uh and the it's a the the uh it ain't easy album is is just full of terrific songs from elton john and from rod stewart and standards and um and they each did a great job they then the record was quite successful and um they eventually did a a follow-up which i don't think works quite as well but is is fine um but that that one record is is a is just a great piece of uh, kind of pop sensibilities mixed with um, a solid love for the for the blues and boogie woogie music. Warm the wine and give it to me just one more time again. I'm just a rolling stone who needs a drop of rain and a taste your honey mona like a licking on the sun. Tracks it in your backyard, so come here and give me some. Said a lady, that's the way. You gotta rock me when it's gone. You make me feel like a geezer train going home. We got so much to give each other, and we've only just begun. So take me, baby, break me, lady. Gotta rock me when it's gone. Just to make you 
From the 1971 album, It Ain't Easy, that's Long John Baldry with the Elton John Burning Toppin' song, Rock Me When He's Gone, unearthed on rockremnants.com. And Peter, that track certainly sounds like an Elton John song and like an Elton John production, but it has that Long John Baldry uh, blues feel. Yeah, I think it's it's a, a great, they were just a great match, and um, there, are all kind, there are all kinds of great finds on that record. It's, uh, it's well worth looking for. It's on. I'm pretty sure it's on Spotify. I, I've uh, found it on Google Music. It's, it's out there and um, well worth a spin. Peter, I actually knew Long John Baldry from my newspaper days when he was touring uh, in the latter part of his career when he was basically trying to get a gig wherever he could and found himself in Western Canada fairly frequently. I, I spent a really enjoyable evening one night drinking with him in the bar of the now defunct Georgia Hotel in Regina, Saskatchewan. It was the local blues bar and he was playing there. Uh, I was drinking glasses of beer, basically, and he was drinking the same size glasses of whiskey. He could really put it away. Now that's where that voice comes from, the whiskey voice. Yeah, he did have the whiskey voice, and and uh, people constantly coming up to him and telling him how much they loved his music, and the bar was always packed when he was there. He put on a really great show. He had a really tight band. Long John Baldry is a, a terrific musician, and uh, I think he's dead now, and that's a, that's a shame, but if you have an opportunity, why don't you check out some Long John Baldry when you can? It's very, very interesting music. What else do you have on now or coming up at Rock Remnants? Well, we're kind of in a lull. It, it, um, March is, is a busy time, as you might imagine, for us baseball writers. And um, 
so we'd pop in every once in a while. Uh, Gene posted a the great Only One song, um, Another Girl, Another Planet, um, last night, which led to some interesting discussion, actually on Facebook, with uh, the great Tout Wars champion John Coleman, um, who was a fan of the song, and, and then turned me back to the Soft Boys, which is Robin Hitchcock's original band, I think original band, um, and uh, and then got me thinking some more about the Only Ones, um, which I, I posted a, a, another Only One song, City of Fun, which um, which has a cover by uh, the 90s grunge band Come that performing it live from uh, the Peel sessions, so and that's just what I, that's what I find just so great about the site. I, I um, it's a it's a great way to to share these uh, a lot of YouTube a lot of YouTube clips and a lot of music that um, just comes in from all the different places that we hear music nowadays and um, and uh, and then share it with people who have similar interests and, and uh, sometimes get feedback, find out about people who've been drinking with Long John Baldry, <laughs> um, which is uh, which is a good story. It's an interesting site in that respect as well because, as you said, one post seems to inspire the next, and it oftentimes starts a really interesting conversation that leads down into other things that if you like the first song, somebody will say, well, if you like this, you should check out that. And and uh, before you know it, you've spent a, a very enjoyable half an hour on bouncing around on YouTube from clip to clip as they're recommended by these very knowledgeable music fans and music writers in their own rights uh, at rockremnants.com. It's a terrific site. It's a great idea. And it's uh, especially interesting if you know the people involved, of course, uh, from their baseball writing or personally. It's, it's a terrific site. I really like it. Uh, Peter, let's close now. Uh, during spring training, I always ask our expert Tuesday Tout guest to talk about some sleepers and bleepers. We know what sleepers means. Uh, I call bleepers the ones that are no bleeping way going to be on your roster this year because they're going to be overvalued. Let's start with the sleepers. Uh, who do you like in the American League as a potential sleeper hitter? Uh, so this, these lists I always uh, I struggle with, but let me I'll, I'll kick some ideas around here. Um, Salvador Perez is an American League catcher, the, the best American League catcher. Um, he's uh, the perfect age. He's, uh, the, the group is pretty weak, and um, I think he's got some more growth in him to come. That makes him un, a little bit underpriced so far this year. Um, I wouldn't go crazy bidding him up, but if you can get him in the you know, 16, 17 range, he's uh, in an AL League, I think he's a, he's a good buy. Um, the other guy I like as a kind of sleeper hitter, it looks like he's dropped down, is um, Eddie Rosario, who is a, like a young power speed guy. Um, and uh, he showed progress as he, as he played along last summer. And um, he's gonna, I think he's going to have a whole season to um, hit some home runs and steal some bases. I saw him play in a spring training game the other day, and he roped a triple into the right field corner. Yeah, I mean, he really hit it hard, and uh, and the guy bobbled it out in right field, but uh, Eddie Rosario would have had an easy triple. He slid, but he didn't have to. He could have, uh, the announcer said he could have crawled into third, and uh, that was exactly right. Eddie Rosario can hit and he can run. It's a great pick. Uh, National League sleeper hitter, Peter? Well, well so the, Billy Hamilton is my sleeper hitter here because – Everybody hates him this year. Everybody says he's, he can't hit, he can't 
Um, he's he's just so terrible. They they just can't play him anymore. But the fact is, they don't really have a replacement for him, and they have an investment in him in terms of time. He the speed is obviously for real, and I, it just it feels to me like they've got to work him and just keep playing him and just keep working with him and, and um, trying to get him to make contact and not hit those home runs, which are, you know, that's obviously a deleterious thing for him. Now, I, I, wrote, I wrote his name down. I said that um, because of conversations I've had with people. And then I noticed that in the CBS Analyst League and in labor, he actually went for a lot of money, a lot more than I would pay. So I, I, he's not a guy that you want to pay into the 20s for, but it sure seems to me like he could be in the, in, somewhere in the teens. He could be a, a bucket of steals. And even if, he, if they eventually just give up on him in July, he'll have a bucket of steals for if, if the price is right. Um, the other guy in this spot I liked is uh, Wilmer Flores, who it went for a dollar in both CBS and Labor, and who um, is the backup to David Wright. David Wright is you know, deteriorating. Um, I think Flores has good power and, and is a great, great shot to end up with 350 at-bats and hit some home runs, and for a buck, it was well worth a shot. I see these analyses of Billy Hamilton, uh, and they say, you know, his on-base percentage is so low that you can't trust him to get these uh, stolen bases. And you think to yourself, his on-base percentage has always been low, and he's always got stolen bases because he doesn't have to reach that often to steal a ton of bases because he steals a base practically every time he reaches. You know, so, I mean, if he... if he improved his on-base percentage, of course that would be fantastic because he'd have more opportunities to steal even more bases. But gosh, you know, if he only reaches base 150 times, he's going to steal 75 bases. Exactly. And, and how, I mean, I, I don't know enough about him to know if he's just stubborn and that he's going to, he's going to play himself out of this. But with some, with some bunts, with some bunting, with some weak ground ball contact, he can, he can get on base more than he's been getting on. It's, um, he just he just needs to be able to put the bat on the ball, and he's he's still a youngster. He still um, he still has a chance to to improve in that that category. I wonder why they don't get him into like a Ricky Henderson crouch to to boot and try to draw a few walks that way. Uh, anything he can do to get on base helps the club. And as you said, every home run he hits is like a dagger in somebody's heart or should be because now he thinks he can do it and now he's going to hit a lot of cans of corn, which really does reduce his value, unfortunately. Uh, moving over to the mound, uh, sleeper pitcher in the American League? Um, I, I like James Paxton. Um, he's, he's had injury problems. Um, and his control hasn't been the greatest, but he throws hard. He gets out. He hasn't walked so many guys that you have to worry about him. There's questions, obviously. Can he stay healthy? Um, and and um, But all in all, he's a guy who I think is in a great position to make a great improvement this year if he, stay, if he can stay healthy. Um, and there's no. this is one of those things where there's no way, way for us to know, but that's reflected in his price for a fairly small price. I think he has a lot of upside. And over in the National League, who's the sleeper pitcher there? Well, so Aroldis Vizcaino is is going cheap because people say, look at Jason Grilly, and I, I guess he's showing some health and think that he's going to get he's going to be the closer in Atlantis. That would be funny um, in Atlanta. Um, I, I but I, it looks. To me, like the the team's commitment has to be to Vizcaino, and um, if you can get him cheap, he could be some some vest pocket C 
saves if you're if I'm wrong, and he can be a lot of saves if he's uh, if uh, a lot of saves for cheap. If Grilly either gets hurt, which is entirely possible, or is traded, which has been uh, talked about a lot as well. Peter Kreutzer's sleepers in the American League: the hitters Sal Perez and Eddie Rosario. In the National League, Billy Hamilton and Wilmer Flores. Uh, Peter's pitchers are James Paxton and Aroldis Vizcaino. Uh, let's move to the bleepers, the guys you are not going to have on your roster this year because you expect them to be overvalued fairly badly. Uh, let's start with an American League hitter who's a bleeper for you. David Ortiz is really old, and he's a DH. And in American League-only leagues, DHs are discounted quite a bit. But in the CBS League and in labor Ortiz is not being discounted. He's going in the mid-20s, and, um, and that's just the price that's too high. It's, um, he clogs up your DA spot. He's um, 40 years old and, and uh, is just you know one oblique strain away from missing two months or, or the rest of the season. Um, I would not be paying more than – I think I would not be paying more than about 16 bucks for him, but, um, but he's going for 7 or $8 more than that. Also, a guy that size and that age is probably going to have knee and ankle problems. Believe me, I know. Who's your bleeper hitter in the National League? Well, the guy who's most over, overpriced is Corey Seager, for sure, um, which is not to say that he's not going to be very good. He, he probably is going to be very good right from the get-go, but his, he's being priced as if he's, um, he's going to be great right out of the, out of the bat this, this year. He was certainly fine. Um, he was very good last year, but he's um, he, there's going to be adjusting. There's going to be um, changes. He's now I, I, um, he's battling through some injury stuff too. Um, doesn't sound like that's too serious f- for now, but um, I just think it's crazy to to um, be, you know be spending in the in the mid to high twenties for a guy who has, has so few major league at bats. Okay, let me ask you this: In a mixed league, uh, who 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 should go for more, Corey Seager or Kyle Seager? I I would take Kyle Seager ahead of Corey Seager, but there um, and and that's not been the case in most of the the drafts I've been involved in. Um, I think it happened once. In the American League, Peter, who's a bleeper pitcher you think is going to be overvalued? I I think all the evidence on Felix Hernandez is it's. it's is a slow decline, which could accelerate at any time, and so um, he should not be going in the in the twenties at this point. He he earned twenty last year. Um, that, but it, there is scant evidence that we should look to see him bounce back from the great year he had in 2014. Um, the velocity isn't there. He's a he's a terrific pitcher, but he's got a lot of innings on that arm. I would just not be bidding him up into the cat. You know, to where those other young, um, studly pitchers are. Of course, you've heard the uh, offsetting explanation. Well, he had those two terrible starts, then the uh, nine-run, one and a half, one and a third, two-inning starts. And if it wasn't for that, he would have been, you know, Clayton Kershaw practically. And to me, it seems like this is more a canary in the coal mine type of thing when when a guy has two starts like that than it is, oh, it's just nothing, you know, it could happen to anybody. It doesn't happen to anybody. It happens to pitchers who are having trouble. Felix Hernandez knows how to pitch, and, he's, and just the loss of the velocity is not going to be totally crippling, but it gives him much less margin for error. And 
and we don't know how long you know the slide is. All pitchers, when, when the innings get get up to this level, um, have issues, and whether he can handle it or not, I I think you don't want to bet that he can. I wonder if that has something to do with pitch mix because uh, I'm old enough to remember pitchers who threw 300 innings a year and did it for forever, Steve Carlton and guys like that. And now it seems like they 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 hit the wall sooner in their careers and actually in in any particular season. Have you ever looked at that and wondered about it? Well, the the evidence that I've seen, I mean, this is the evidence of going from the history of baseball is going from a one-man rotation to a two-man rotation to a three-man rotation to a four-man rotation to a five-man rotation, and now there are teams that are even from time to time going to a six-man rotation. The Part of that is that I, I think um, the evidence is that part of it is pitchers are throwing a lot harder now than they used to, that a pitcher, in even in Steve Carlton's day, would face another pitcher who most likely couldn't hit and also a shortstop who couldn't hit, and sometimes a second baseman who wasn't who was kind of a banjo-like hitter too, and that you could pitch through the lineup and um, and relax for a little while. You could you could um, you didn't have to worry about the shortstop hitting a home run. You didn't have to worry about the the pitcher getting on base. Um, there's a lot more stress on pit, having to pitch to every hitter in the lineup, especially with when the pitcher isn't batting, but even in, in, with pitchers who are batting, they're very often the only um, easy out in the lineup, and it's, so pitchers have to focus and pitch a lot harder, and they're throwing with more velocity as well, um, and, and that, all of that adds up to more strain on the arm, I, I would say. Yeah, there has been some pretty um, convincing research on the subject of pitch counts that suggests it isn't the number of pitches, it's the number of high-stress pitches. That is, you know, guys in scoring position where you have to go from the stretch rather than from the wind-up and you lose that ad- mechanical advantage and so forth, and that injury prediction is more, should be more based on high-stress situations rather than just a, a raw count. And as you say, there isn't that opportunity for the pitcher to have an easy out here and there the way that there used to be back in the day. So um, maybe it just happens sooner because everybody's getting better. Uh, uh, Finally, Peter, let's wrap it up with a National League bleeper pitcher. Uh, This is a young guy, Rizal Iglesias, who um, started out last year, ended up um, sent down to the minors. He came back. He had 40 very solid innings um, to end the season. But he also um, came from Cuba as a reliever. He was not been he had not been stretched out. Um, he is uh, the scouting reports were that he he might be able to adapt to be a starter, but he could be a a number three or number four starter in the major leagues. Um, the the Reds didn't make a huge investment in him, and um, I am dubious that he's going to be like the the Danny um, Valencia. No, he, that he's going to be a, a huge breakout starter this year. He's um, definitely worth a shot if he's cheap enough. But if he goes up into the mid-teens, I think there are better choices at that point. He's far from proven that he can um, sustain beyond what he did at the end of last year. 
Peter Kreutzer's Bleepers, David Ortiz, Corey Seeger, Felix Hernandez, and Raisel Iglesias. Uh, Peter, this has been fantastic. Uh, such an entertaining discussion about baseball and music. Tell us where listeners can catch up with you and stay in touch with Peter Kreutzer. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Patrick. It's always a great um, pleasure to be talking with you, talking with you live, talking with you on the on the uh, the podcast. It's um, it's always a pleasure. Um, I'm. I uh, tweet occasionally at uh, K R O Y T E, and I um, ask Rotoman is at blog.askrotoman.com. Um, I, I make comments every day about players and things that uh, Patton and Co. P A T T O N A N D C O dot com. Um, and there's Rock Remnants, which is uh, rockremnants.com, where the music stuff is. Peter, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, Patrick. Peter Kreutzer is the commissioner of Tout Wars, also has those website presences that he talked about, and a Twitter uh, feed at K-R-O-Y-T-E. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 15th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 10 of the 2016 fantasy baseball season. My thanks as well to Peter Kreutzer, the commissioner of Tout Wars and one of the most knowledgeable people in the fantasy baseball community and one of its nicest guys as well. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular news and comment edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.